Hello. Hello. Frank. Hey, Joey. How you doing, man? Good. Welcome back. Thank you, sir. Um, are you are you located in a, in a different place for this this episode of the podcast? I am. Yeah, I moved to Colorado. Um, what's like the the short version of that, just for anybody listening? Because I don't know it, so I would love to hear it. it if uh, if you feel like indulging. The short version. Yeah. Why? Okay. Why from Texas to Colorado? Well, so. The short version is that moving to Texas happened on accident, um, and we were there for three years. My wife and I met and got married out here in Colorado, where we were both living before, and uh, I moved. we moved to Wales after we got married um, for me to do a, a postgraduate program out there, and um, after we were done... Uh, or around about the time that I was getting done, my parents were talking about moving from Austin to Dallas and offered to let us live in their house, um, you know, rent-free, and we didn't really have a plan, and so we just moved there for that. So it wasn't for any real design that we moved to Austin. Um, You know, that's more or less where I grew up, but um, anyway, we moved back because we were trying to get home this whole time, and so it just took, you know, three years or whatever to actually succeed. So are you teaching there, or...? I'm not. I'm not, actually. I'm building cabinets at the moment because I got a job serendipitously right when I got here um, because my a friend of mine makes cabinets uh, who we should actually talk about. I'm going to make a note to talk about him um, later on. Uh, but we, we, my wife came up here from Austin to find a house for us to rent, and um, she found a really great place, and the landlady wanted us to have jobs before we she would lease us the house. Um and so I called my buddy and said, hey, listen, my landlady, need, I need to have my landlady call you, um, and I need you to just tell her that I work for you um, so that I can rent this house, and then I'll find a job when I get there. And he said, well, I'm kind of uncomfortable with that. Why don't you just work for me? <laughs> so, um, you know, I had a job, you know, uh, to start right when I got here. And I assume because you can build boxes, um, you're good at building cabinets. Yeah, well... Well, I'm good at building boxes because I'm good at building cabinets, I would say. <laughs> yeah, that's, um, the, that's the right in way. My, in my previous life, I was a carpenter before I went back to school, so I've got many years of experience doing that. Trades are it right now. Trades are, are really nice, you know. And if, 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 I, if I had been like so many other people and had been a waiter in my previous life, I would probably have gone back to that just to have a job right when I got here. Um, but I was never a waiter and I never worked in a coffee shop. I always did, um, carpentry and construction. I think Um, there's more, um, satisfaction at the end of the day, building shit with your hands and it's, and it's more manly too. Um, I mean, yeah, there's some of that. It's, it's pretty tiring and, you know, I'm used to sitting in a chair and I'm pretty out of shape. So (laughs) (laughs) I don't know how like heroic and manly I feel at the end of the day when I'm just fucking exhausted and I go to bed at seven 30 at night. Um, so this guy, the, is a, is a skater or no? Yeah. Okay. So, so get this, this dude, his name is Wes. Um, and I've, I've actually thought about writing an article about him because, um, he's, he's a bizarre phenomenon. He's, he's a really talented guy. He makes guitars and cabinets. Uh, he built his own house. Um, he's a really, really, uh, excellent woodworker, um, 
And he had been hanging out with me and uh, Jared McVeigh, who's my roommate. Uh, Jared lives with my wife and I in this house that we rent because he, he basically has the whole basement to himself and we have the upstairs. Uh, so it's a pretty nice deal because we have a way nicer house than any of the three of us could afford on our own. <laughs> um, especially because it was such a such a sort of a, a trial to get back to uh, back to Colorado in the first place. And Jared has never left Austin, really. He went on the Colorado road trip last year, and we moved concurrently with the Colorado road trip this year. So when I moved up here, I moved up here and then unpacked the truck and then went on the Colorado road trip and then came back and then started work the next day. So that's how that went. But anyway, this yeah, this guy, Wes, that I work for, um, he had been hanging out with me and Jared a little bit, and he met Jan and uh heath and a couple of the other guys uh when we were doing the road trip and he really took an interest in rollerblading and asked if we could get some skates together for him and so we asked around and he wears you know keychain like size eight skates um and um we got him a pair of um carbon what are the what are the valo the the gray valo skates oh valo light yeah, the Velo Light. Yeah, so we got him. We got him a pair of those, um, and he had never been. He hadn't been rollerblading since like 1992. This dude is about 38 or 39 years old, and came up with us to the skate park and did really, really well. And now is is sort of in the beginning stages of becoming a rollerblader at 39. Wow, <clears throat> that's yeah, unheard of. I, yeah, it's totally unheard of because everybody who's 39, you know, is, is coming back to it because they did it in the 90s or whatever. But I almost want to write an, an interview or write a, a feature about him to just talk to him and say, why in the world of all things did you want to start rollerblading? Like, what what about it interests you? I'd be really curious to know. Yeah. So did he, I mean, did he see a section or something or he just heard you guys talking about it? I mean, it was it was like the Colorado road trip. So like all of us were around, and we were all drinking beer and having a good time and talking about stuff. And I think that, um, I think that there's a lot of aspects to it that he really likes the idea of. I think that he likes um, he really he really likes the idea of being able to skate a bowl. I think that as far as what he's seen of skating and what sounds like it would be fun to him, uh, would be like you know carving a bowl, going really fast, going upside down. Um, and that kind of thing. Um, but I also think that there's a kind of a, a, a sort of a, a brotherhood or a family. And that's, that's, that's a word that I would like to take issue with and come up and maybe, maybe talk about later on in the podcast too. the word family, but at a minimum, we can say that there's a community. Um, and I think that he's, he's kind of intrigued, um, with the community that we have. Um, and he's also heard a lot of my stories about traveling around Europe and stuff and, being able to stay at a rollerblader's house in France just because you rollerblade also. And that, you know, that's, that's pretty cool. Cause he's, he's traveled around the world a little bit, um, but has, you know, never had the luxury of having somebody show him around town. Wow. And 38 or 39, Holy crap. So I didn't, I didn't get a chance to uh, see any topics. So you're pretty much, we can start wherever, you want oh yeah i totally yeah I, I was i was actually trying to come up with things to talk about but i started talking to my wife i went outside to smoke a cigarette before this and she'd rattled off a bunch of things we well, talk about this 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 and this and i was like oh yeah i guess so i haven't i haven't 
I haven't said anything about any of those things in quite a while. Yeah. Um, so let's do it. Like start anywhere. I, there's a lot. There's a lot that. Uh, there's a lot that that's can... yeah. I mean, I, I, the last time I think I did a podcast was when Todd was at my house in Austin. Holy shit! So are we almost a year or six? Yeah, no, that was that was that was like six months ago, maybe. Oh, okay. Maybe. Okay. Well, no, I guess now it's probably is six months. <clears throat> it was it was just before. It was sometime late spring. It was during South by Southwest. Um, I need to say just just off the bat that you were right about two things that took me a really, 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 really long time to arrive at. And um, okay. I posted a little thing on it, but one was uh, higher cuff skates. Um, oh, huh. And, uh, and long frames that are rockered. Um, when you said that you would skate the shit out of, a, out of a long frame, I can't remember what size you said, but... Um, both of those things now are really starting to click from someone who yeah, skated man. floppy um, cuffless rims on the shortest frame he could find. Like I, I get it now. <laughs> how tall, how tall are you? How tall are you? I'm six feet. And what size skate do you wear? Um, I, uh, do you do that like framing I'm a, of shame where you try to stuff your foot into like a teeny tiny little, little skate. I'm like, I'm like a 10 in a roses shell, which is a bit big. I'm like a nine. If I can get into a nine, some skates I can get into an eight. Um, like in OG wow. OG Rams, I got into an eight. But if I go to a shoe store, they'll tell me I'm a ten and a half. Um, and my hockey wow. skates were an eight, I think. And um, with the Intuition Liner, I was able to get into Leon's uh, seven carbon wow. the other day. So wow. And but I don't have the thing where my toe like. You look at Josh Silver's feet and his pinky toe and the toe beside that, they curl over top oh, uh-huh. of his other toes, like the chi- the Chinese foot torture, or whatever, you oh, know? Oh, yeah, the foot binding. Yeah, foot binding. That's He has that, like his feet have changed. But he gets into like sixes if he can. His you feet know, are a little he, bit smaller. Years ago, this is, this is years ago, man. I was in a barber shop getting a haircut. My dad had taken me down to get a haircut. And I was sitting there reading like a Sports Illustrated, and it had photographs of all these people's feet. And one of the pictures, and like you just you couldn't ever tell who it was. I mean, you could tell whether the guy's black or white or whether it's a woman or not, but that's about it. Because I mean, when do you ever see people's feet? But they showed a picture of um, uh, Pele, the the soccer player. Um, they showed a picture of his feet, and they weren't nearly as beat to shit as you would expect. Yeah, because I don't know. I don't know why in the world that image has stuck with me. But there's just like a straight-on image of like looking like t- like towards his toes with his feet just sort of side by side, and it was it was interesting because some of the people, some of the pitchers from baseball had really gnarly feet, and I couldn't really figure out why that would be. But I know for a fact that like having you know gone swimming and sat in hot tubs and stuff with other rollerbladers, a lot of us have feet that are just fucking gnarly. <laughs> Yeah, we showed we we did that video, prove yourself too, and someone had the idea of filming like our feet really close up. Feet, yeah. And uh, there was yeah, there's a lot of disgusting feet, not even from a toenail perspective, because there was a lot of crazy shit going on with toenails, like bruising oh. and fungal infections, but also some of the bumps that that happen, some of the yeah. bunion bunion looking things. 
Um, well, it's, it's a lot of habitual use, especially for those of us who've been skating for, you know, 20 years or whatever. That's, that's really asking a lot of a body part to, you know, stuff it into a plastic shell for hours a day times 20 years. But it's not like, um, I mean, don't like ballet dancers, not that I'm, I'm saying the two are the same thing, but don't they have like some of the worst feet of anything in terms of like the, the bones and the bruising and. I, I, yeah, I think so. Um, I don't know. I would. I would expect so. I mean, that's really fucking. It's really in, in, incredible what they do, um, and 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 probably disfiguring to their feet. I would think. Um, uh, but I know. I know that a lot of um, the ice skaters, like the Olympic ice skaters, don't wear socks, and some of those ladies have pretty gnarly looking feet. I don't. Um, I do in the winter, um, just just to keep keep my feet warmer. But yeah, I don't wear, I don't wear socks, and uh, it's. I did that. I did that for a while, but it smells too bad, dude. Like if you put it back in your car, then your car's ruined. Yeah. To like burn it down just to get the smell out. I've tried a bunch of things, and and um, one one thing that I just got helps quite a bit. I got a boot dryer for like um, ski liners. Uh-huh. Yeah. Or or uh, hunters use them too to get their boots dry quick. I got one of those and then I got, I spray them and I put them on a boot dryer. So if they can get dry really quickly and you take the footbeds out, that seems to be the best. But, um, the intuition liner, especially like that foam is meant to keep your feet really warm when you're skiing. And, uh, the skate version has some like holes poked out, but yeah, I've had some really, 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 really bad. Like I think at one point I was, I kept them in a bag if I was going in someone else's car, I would like put them in a garbage bag. Yeah, um, I can I can imagine that. <laughs> but um, I don't recommend it. The problem is, it feels so good when you try it that it's hard to go back to socks. And uh, Bobby Orr, I was a fan of, and he skated. He played hockey sockless. So. Oh, I know Bobby Orr. Um, but talking about feet, was uh, the new feet video? Was there anything that you wanted to talk about? That was that on your list at all? Um, um, well, so a couple of a couple of points that so I, I I'm sure it's it's known it's known by now that I'm I'm not writing for one magazine anymore and that I write articles for B Mag now. Um, I had intended I wrote one uh, right before we moved, and I had this great ambition that I would move to Colorado. Everything would organize itself in my house, my garage would get in order, everything would be perfect, and I'd be up and writing articles within a week or two. Um, and that didn't really happen at all. There was so, like, we had, was so underestimated how much shit that we have. And, you know, we were living in my parents' house before this, and when you live in a larger house, it's really easy to accumulate stuff. And the amount of shit that we had, plus my grandmother uh, passed away a few years ago while we were abroad, and my family didn't really want to just have an estate sale to get rid of her stuff. And so not having any real sense of how much stuff there was, we agreed in Wales to just take the balance of all of her stuff. Um, and, and so they put it all in storage, and it was delivered to us when we moved to Austin. And it was insane amount of stuff. It was just an insane – there was like 50 chairs. There was like chests of drawers and books and – tables and beds and sheets and clothes and jewelry and like every fucking thing that you can imagine and 
And we went through a lot of it and sold some of it and got rid of some of it, but we also kept quite a bit of it. And we had a house at the time at my parents' house that we were living in that was um, uh, sizable enough that we could absorb a lot of that furniture and stuff. Uh, so, so when we moved here, we got here with just a humongous amount of stuff. Anyway, long story short is that um, I was not up and writing articles uh, within two weeks, as I had imagined. Instead, it was you know four months or something like that. Um, and when Lonnie's video came out, I, I you know I grew up with Lonnie, and so I wanted to uh, to write an article for him for BMag, just to kind of you know do do my part to help him out. Um, and frankly, I think I, I, I totally stand by everything I wrote in the article, and I think it's a really, really great movie. Um, the most interesting thing I thought about it was that it, I, I really felt like for a long time I haven't had a good understanding of what modern rollerblading looks like, because in Austin we would skate the box and we would go to the skate park and skate stuff and we would skate street occasionally, and you know the rest of the guys like Mason and Andrew Broom and all those guys. They would skate street all the time, and I would get out, you know, to skate with them sometimes. But by and large, when we would skate in the box and skate the parks and stuff, like skating didn't look different to me than it did ten years ago or or even fifteen years ago. Um, and Lonnie's movie really did a lot to convince me that there is. Uh, there, there are a lot of changes that have taken place, um, and and not necessarily just superficial ones. Uh, I think that creativity is kind of booming, and it's it's sort of in vogue right now. The way that stunts were in vogue previously, and um, it's it it was really convincing. I think for me to see his his work, and and have it be laid pretty clearly out for me, uh, what modern rollerblading looks like and i think that you know some people liked it some people didn't some people complained about they didn't like the music or whatever um and i'll be really eager to hear what he has to say when he comes on and talks to y'all um but my main thing is that uh, you know what's what's really clear is that he's he's giving us a snap shot of of what he thinks modern rollerblading is and it's really ultra technical and kind of ultra classic i would say and that's kind of the state of where we are now, at least as as, as presented by Lonnie's video. Um, the backslides alone were really interesting for me when I watched it. That um, they were the first like longer modern backslides and newer skates that were controlled, but way, way faster, way faster because it's hard to hold that shit down. I think I'm uh-huh. thinking of uh, was it Cruz? Did one down like a really crazy drop rail. I'm pretty sure he did a backslide. That stuck out for me quite a bit. Yeah, I think I think that's right. Um, and it was a grind heavy video too. Um, yeah, I think that we we might have had some 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 quick dialogue about that on Facebook. Yeah, um, that it was. It is it is almost totally a grinding video, but there's a lot of non grinding elements. You know, there's a lot of set slides. There's a lot of um, uh, like wall rides and stuff like that. I don't. I. 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 I, I could probably guarantee that there's not a flip in the video. Um. No. I, I'm pretty confident I can guarantee that there's not a flip. But you know, there aren't really flips in any other videos. I mean, like. 
the last one I could think of, and and I haven't seen every video that's been out, you know, but I've watched as much as everybody else watches, I think. But uh, the last video that I can think of that had a flip in it was um, Pat Lennon doing a fakey backflip in Leading the Blind. Yeah, it well, and flipping, strangely enough to me, has always seemed like more of a European thing, apart from Conor O'Brien, um, yeah, and and Pat Lennon. It it seems yeah. like it's a European thing, and I don't know if I'm making a, a generalized statement, but as someone who's like, yeah, tried to keep up on their videos, you know, you might see. Oh, I'm sorry, there was. Something that came up recently, um, John Cooley. Do you know that name? Uh-huh. Um, he did a, at the end of like a REM section or something like that, he did a Misty Flip both ways on street, which I thought was really cool. Um, okay. Over like a stair gap. That's yeah, the only I, modern I, thing. I, yeah. I mean, I, I, I don't mean to, to draw attention toward or away from flips in any way, yeah. one way or another. <clears throat> but... Um, I guess I kind of just use it as a stand-in for any kind of any kind of upside-down movement, I guess. Yeah. Because, you know, I, I don't think that there's been a McTwist in a video since, I don't know, VG2? VG, I, I doubt there's one in VG3. There was McTwist in the bottom line, but that's like the third video. Oh, there was a McTwist in VG3. In the Woodward section. Yeah, in the Woodward section. Oh, that's probably, probably, yeah, Chris Edwards or somebody on yeah. the outdoor verb. Yeah, that's, that's probably true. But that's yeah, okay. So yeah, no use for but, a name. But... Anyways. What was the band? Yeah. Okay. Um, but you're right. Like even in the last Volo video, um, I don't think there would be a flip, and there definitely was no. No, no, I, I take that back because there was, there was videos uh, in the '90s and maybe maybe even early 2000s that had Tim Ward, or Matt Salerno doing McTwists. So it's it's been at least as recently as that. It, we don't think we have to go all the way back to the very beginning. Yeah, no, but I know where you're coming from. Talk talking about the flip thing. I even think that yeah. Connor O'Brien um, came under a lot of criticism for doing his flips. Um, yeah. When he did them, especially I think he had that, to like that may well. he had to grab his shin or something. Like they weren't always the uh -huh. most stylish things. And uh, there was a big argument online once, and I think it was, yeah, I think it was when Colin Kelso was having his meltdown online, something to do with that. Oh yeah. But, anyways, back to feet. Yeah, it was it was a grind heavy video. But I did you watch um, did you purchase or watch 18 plus yet? The I have not. No, I, I intend to, but I have not yet. It's interesting because it's kind of it's it's kind of like a modern version of rollerblading, but taking grindbox and P rail kind of skating, and and uh -huh. taking it it's it's a street skating video, but with like a grindbox and P rail mentality. Like, did you ever watch any of the Kelso edits where they were just doing P rail skating like in their basement? Yeah. Um, it it has that feel, but it's a street skating video, and uh, I think that's where it's been really controversial. But at the same time, it is very, um, it has the the creative boom that you talked about from feet, but just on a much smaller scale. Um, yeah. And there's kind of the argument; it's kind of split between people who think that 
it's something that inspires, you know, fun and that we can all relate to it. But then there's people who want to see the that skating done at a much larger level, like in feet, yeah. you know? I think that's interesting too, especially now that we're in the VOD. Someone actually requested where the Frank Stoner VOD video on demand article is because it's such a hot topic. Oh, to write an article about it. Wow. Yeah. I wish people would, I wish people would tell me these things, you know, like if you, man, if you've got a great idea, don't tell it to the internet, tell it to me. I can't remember where I read it, but someone said, where's the Frank Stoner VOD article? Because they they want you, I think they want you to cut through all of the arguing and to just lay it out Where, how you see it. The, where's the arguing taking place? Um, BMAG, obviously. And um, on Facebook, okay. I've seen some stuff. Um, okay. There was a little one on Reddit. I mean, because it's everywhere from feet, was, was feet 25 or 30? I can't remember. I think it was it 25 what do you oh i think it was it cost it cost i think 25 dollars okay so there was okay there's three arguments right now there's there's that feet was too expensive and then there was that feet was obviously we should pay that much for the amount of work and and the skaters featured in it and they should get paid and then there was the argument that um the new 18 plus people were like ten dollars for uh a curb skating video people were upset but then then there was ten dollars for an amazingly filmed and put together fun video and then the biggest one lately which i haven't even been caught up on this was that montre's pro skate uh edit is going to be a video on demand and i can't remember what the price was and that brought up the biggest discussion I, there's a lot of people arguing about whether if something is promotional material for a company, it shouldn't be video on demand. Um, so yeah. there's a well, bunch of different perspectives right now. Let me let me let me start off really quickly with two thoughts. The first of which is that you really should talk to Lonnie with yeah. your podcast. What if, if you were Todd podcasts with Lonnie anytime soon? Uh, which I'm hoping to to you know encouraged to to happen because i'd really like i'd really like to see that connection be made um is that is that in the works uh actually i it was supposed to be sunday and oh, i i'm sorry i didn't know if that was top secret and i shouldn't have said anything no and i flaked because um i i realized like historically how many goddamn videos he's made and how many important events he's been to and that I said, I don't want to do that podcast unless I've done my research because like the Jason Marshall podcast, I remember I just, I sat down and I like tried to remember and look up, you know, every section and, and just wrote down a bunch of references. There's like little things with Lonnie, like he filmed Haffy for a drip drop, you know, that that's like, yeah. you know, there's like half an hour that deserves talking about that and i think uh, other than aj he's one of the few dudes who's made i don't even know how many videos in the past two decades a lot of videos so that's why i flaked last minute but i sent him a follow-up message and i hope he's not uh, upset for the record um mike torres is is the most flakes in a row on my part 
and I think he had some, but I think we had 10 setups. Wow. And, yeah, something like that. Wow. Yeah, maybe it was less. Yeah. <laughs> but well, anyway. Well, one, one, <laughs> one thing that you should know, too, for your research is that Lonnie, um, for the most part, Lonnie made all the Battle My Crew edits for the Texas parts. Back Shit. in the day when we had parts in those. Mercenaries? No. What was the name of the crew? Was it just Texas? Oh, God, this is so embarrassing. This is so embarrassing. We were called evil individuals. <laughs> Excellent. But, uh... That was the, the thing is, that was the name of our crew only insofar as we needed a name for our crew. But our crew was like Chris Fleener from Houston... And me and Jason and Lonnie from Austin and Jay and some of the other guys and Anthony Medina and some other Austin guys and a lot of other people too, like Ryan Northway and Rob Guerrero because Rob and Lonnie are really close friends. And for a couple of years, maybe uh, Rob lived in Austin um, and that was back in the day when Lonnie's mom owned the skate park that I had a, a played a, a big role in building lots of the ramps there. Um, but the crew had to, like, as far as our regular crew, it was like me and, J- and Jared McBay and Jason Howard and uh, Jay Garrick and, you know, Lonnie and everybody, uh, Shannon, uh, Shannon Rogers, uh, Anthony Medina and some other people. That was like our real crew back in the day, and we were the Austin guys. And then in, in Dallas, you had like Sean Robertson and other people, um, Aaron Jacobs and some others. Um, and in Houston, you had um, you know Grant and Chris Fleener and all those guys. And so, they, like as we imagined ourselves, you know, we were just the Austin guys or the Houston guys or whatever. Um, but I don't, I, I'm pretty sure that Lonnie came up for that name. Came up with that name, and if you want to embarrass him publicly, you want to ask him about it because I'm pretty sure that he came up with that. And I don't know what the fuck it was supposed to mean because none of us were evil. We were high schoolers, you know. I think it, you know, for for the time and for the edge that you needed, it, it's a good name. And uh, did anybody get evil individual uh, tattoos? No. See, that's the thing that like we weren't. We weren't. That's not who we were. Like that's then you're good to go. Then then that's okay. Yeah, I mean, like it would be it would be as as asinine for me as getting a tattoo that said Austin guy. <laughs> like, yeah. you know what I mean? Like, it would never have occurred to any of us to tattoo that. Whereas yeah. a lot of other crews really were that. Like, there's probably dudes in Peld who had a Peld tattoo. There's definitely uh, some FP. Tattoo. FP for for sure and and like Syndicon I think was the um the the Chicago guys and the Redwood City guys were the bomb squad that was um Shima and Shima, yeah and Johnny Hedges Jim Bell BJ Bernhardt yeah, yeah yeah all those guys they were the bomb squad um and I don't know if I don't know if those guys have bomb squad tattoos or not but and I, that's the thing is that so many of those crews I don't know how many of us had names 
that we actually called ourselves and how many of us had names that were just sort of like thrown together for at the last second because Dave wanted everybody to have a name. We had a dumb name. We definitely had a dumb name. And we had Battle My Crew Canada. We were we were SOL crew. Because of SOL crew? Because of Solidarity Solidarity was the stupid name that we okay. came up with. And it was two uh, older skaters, Jason Wookie and Dean Winstone from Kelowna, which is really close to here. We were driving one time and had to come up with a crew name. And Solidarity came up, and then it became SOL. And then so our, our early videos, some people still maybe once in a while say SOL, like SOL videos, which is funny. Well, one, one that I remember for sure was the guys uh, in Kansas who included Todd Bluebaugh, who went on to work for K2 for a while, Pat Cantola, who now lives out here, Jeremy Morris, um, Alex Brasco, when he was still a grommet, uh, were the Wichita area rollerbladers, which, you know, had the acronym WAR. <laughs> like, like, you could just imagine, like, the teenage angst and all and all this and and if we have a chance to come back to this maybe we can because there's a couple of the ideas of things to talk about um overlap with with this this same kind of notion <laughs> well I, the watching um scooter videos just i know you want to go somewhere um from that topic but just a quick thing that I wanted to say was watching scooter videos. I'm watching like my own um, experience Dude, of rollerblading through. It's fucking crazy. Like it's exactly everything from like the um, that Paris. Like there was a Bercy scooter edit uh -huh. um, where there was like a team rider for Elites, which is like you know like the Razors backed company, I think. Okay. And and there's thousands of people at Bercy for the scootering contest, and someone was like, "Fuck the police!" And to me now, it it seems ridiculous. But when I was like like late teens or whatever, and I saw like a rollerblader say that in the video, I thought I thought it was I thought it was badass. Like, or when I was a teenager and we watched B Bell videos, we actually thought that those dudes were gangsters. Yeah. And they 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 weren't at all, not even close. But we fully believed it. And I don't know if today's world is obviously smarter from the internet because we were just watching. I, I, think, I think that there was there was some some dudes that Brian Bell hung out with who were pretty tough dudes who I wouldn't who I wouldn't mess with. But as far as Brian Brian Bell being like a drug kingpin, you know, I think that you're you're right on about that, that he was never like a an actual gangster, but I think that some of the dudes that he knew were pretty fucking pretty tough and pretty fucking legit. I think it's amazing. I learned a lot about like um, music and graffiti and breakdancing. Like uh -huh. those videos got a lot of play because it was so far from our world. Um, yeah. Although that culture was pretty popular, um, where we went to high school and and uh, Kamloops was really well known. I, I would love to talk to um, one of the Bay Area dudes like. It's really well known in the San Francisco hip hop scene. Like there was a golden age of hip hop and graffiti in Kamloops, which is really funny. Weird. That's a whole different thing, though. But anyways, you're you're in control. So where do you want to go? Like 
from the crew uh, discussion. Okay, well, I'll, I'll, well, let me. We sort of got sidetracked there real quick, so I'll, yeah, we did. Finish that. <clears throat> the first thing is um, about VODs, um, and as far as feet is concerned, number one, you should definitely um, ask Lonnie. I would say that sort of first and foremost. Um, the second thing, which is really my own comment, is that um, I, I, I was. I don't know who I was telling this to, but I was saying this to somebody fairly recently. I was having coffee with my friend Kathy, and I was saying to her that one of the best things that I got out of the years of graduate school that I've had um, is to be really comfortable having complicated relationships with things so that, you know, I don't have to be totally for or against something that I need to just be comfortable enough and confident enough with the things that I'm doing that if they are uh, at, at odds with, you know, the research that somebody else is doing, um, that there doesn't really need to be any great conflict. And, and when things get so ideological, they tend to get, um, they, they tend to get really, really locked, um, and there, there's a $10 word I'm trying to think of, and I can't think of it. But, um, you know, I, I think I see, I see a lot of people and, uh, you know, talking about different topics about rollerblading and stuff. And, and I think that there's this perceived, uh, there's, there's this perception that we have to tend to everything right now. As if the Facebook conversation that I'm having with somebody is, is what's going to fucking fix it, you know? And none of those things are going to change in any kind of time scale that's reasonable. Anything that's going to change in rollerblading is going to happen very slowly and very steadily, whether it's happening for good or for bad. Um, and it, it's, it's really, I don't know, I don't know how to put this. I guess it's, it's just a kind of a patience and, and, a, and a sense of security where I don't feel offended by people who disagree with me because... Some of these issues that I deal with in academics aren't ever going to be resolved. Some of these issues that I deal with have been, you know, debated since Aristotle was was walking the earth, you know? A lot of these things just aren't going to fix themselves in any kind of reasonable time scale. And it doesn't really do me any good to get super huffy about it. And I think that a lot of the kind of uh, message board style in, 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 in anywhere, like on Facebook or, or the BMAG message board or Reddit or any of the other, uh, like, like I go on Imager all the time. Do you ever do Imager? No. Uh, Instagram gets pretty heavy too. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Any, any of those kind of forum based things, I think that there's, there's a kind of a, a global trend, I think, online for there to, to, to be a final answer and for the community to use its democratic power to upvote and downvote things and to share and to ignore things that either drive things into oblivion and obscurity or hoist things into viral um, circulation. <laughs> And, and that democratic power is pretty tremendous, but it also is indicative, I think, of 
a population of people and a, and a cultural trend online that says that we have to know what the answer is. You know, we have to, we have to as a group, decide right now, once and for all, what we think about this. And, and I think that that's so hasty and so premature. You know, I mean, if people are getting really bent out of shape about um, video on demand, then don't do it. If you, you know, see something and you, you hear it's really great, then buy it, you know, who cares? But like, I don't see the, I don't see the hostility about it. I really don't. There, there's been so much talk over the years about how rollerblading deserves to get paid and how, you know, pros need to get this and that treatment and so on. And I'm not saying that everybody has that opinion, but, uh, um, you know, there's, oh, there's just, there's no, there's no reason to demand that kind of finality for anything. Like these things, people are going to keep rollerblading. Some people are going to make videos. Some people are going to sell the videos. Some people are going to put the videos straight onto YouTube. It's all the same to me. That's, that's kind of where I'm coming from. Yeah. And, and I like that because that means in five, 10, 20 years, people will either continue watching the thing or they won't. And I don't know, a long history will decide um, whether things are important or not. I don't know. I like the idea. I like the idea that, that you can watch Dustin Latimer's Coop to Tat section on repeat for the rest of your life if you want, and you don't have to buy a VOD. I like right. that about the internet. Right. Um, anyways. But so. what, what, I'm, what I'm getting at, though, is that there's, there's a certain amount of respect for your fellow man that I think that we all need to have and that really gets lost on the internet um, because, you know, somebody, whoever made a, any particular section, you know, there's a lot that goes into making a section. The skating, the filming, all the choices and all that kind of stuff. And what what's what's bothersome is that it 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 discounts what it took to get there you know there's 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 always talk ambient in rollerblading about respect in various ways and that's that's kind of a separate topic altogether because i have my own sort of issues with people clamoring for respect but the thing is to to be able to make those choices you have to be so educated in terms of skating and photography and our culture and what you think is good and what you think is acceptable and what you think will be well received by other people or what kind of what kind of steering you're trying to do if you're trying to steer things um i one of the things that i didn't count in Lonnie's video was how many one-footed tricks were grabbed versus how many one-footed tricks were not grabbed um there were a lot of things that I counted for that video, but after I wrote the thing and it was 10 pages long, I had to cut a huge, I had to cut almost all of what I had written and what I had researched for that video um, because it needed to be a length that people would read for a review of a video. And I think already it was kind of long, but um, I don't know. And this is something that I would be curious to have you ask, have encourage you to ask Lonnie would would be to ask him whether there was anything that he was trying to steer 
uh, rollerbladers towards or away from. I, I wrote, for instance, in that article that there weren't any toe rolls um, in the video. And before I published the article, I was talking to Lonnie, and we kept saying, you know, let's carve out some time and sit down and talk. Um, and I never actually was able to get an answer out of him before the article went live. And so the article ran with me speculating over whether he had tried to steer rollerblading away from toe rolls by not including them. Um, and I, I'd have to check exactly what I wrote in the article, but I don't remember saying the toe roll is dead. Lonnie said so. No, um, no. I think you I remember kind of speculating that this is kind of weird. It's, it's, it's not like toe rolls are a mainstay of rollerblading, but in a 40-minute video, you would expect to see one, maybe. I mean, I think I would expect to see one. Maybe I wouldn't. I don't know. Um, but it, it, it's interesting to me that, that when, you, when you make a video, you, you are making lots of choices that are informed by many, many years of, of practicing skating and being in the culture um, and knowing the culture and knowing the people and interacting with the people. Um, and, and, you know, I think that sometimes people do consciously try to steer things. And I would probably say that historically, um, efforts to consciously steer things in one direction or another have failed when it's become clear that they were conscious efforts to steer things. <laughs> That's one thing I think about our culture is that we really are resentful of leadership, um, but we also we also are, are frustrated by how how what what position we're left in when we have no central authority. So it's it's definitely a double edged sword. But you know, I remember, and I th think I've written about um, you know Dave Payne, for instance. He didn't want to use natural and switch to signify you know right handed, left handed, you know nat you know regular and and opposite in terms of our handedness or our footedness or whatever. Uh, and he wanted to use natural and unnatural because um, natural or regular and switch had already been taken by skateboarding. And he consciously didn't want to use skateboarding language in rollerblading. And so if you watch the old VG movies, the switch sections were called unnatural. And uh, that never caught on. And I think that's in due in part to the fact that people saw, some people saw at least, that as a move on Dave's part to control our language. And they rejected it for that reason. I've already had a skier uh, call me out for calling uh, Switch fakey. Switch and skiing is fakey. They don't say fakey, though. Right. Yeah, I understand that. And I, 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 they're, they're, it's all a mess, and, and <laughs> it really is. The thing, the thing though, the, the thing I think that's really instructive though, is that language is always a mess. It's always like this, and English is this way, and French is this way, and Swahili is this way. There is no perfect thing, and everything is always influenced by something that came before it. There is no patient zero language that everything comes from. Even things like um, Latin that have a humongous influence in terms of its grammar on all of the European languages 
except for German and English. Um, and, and they do have massive influences on English and German as well. But even having something as giant and juggernaut sized as Latin, I mean, the Roman Empire was a huge portion of, of Europe. The whole of Europe, parts of, parts of Asia, the whole North Rim of Africa, and, 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 it, and you know, blah, 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 whatever. I'm not going to give a history lesson. But the point is, even, even Latin, as giant a language and influence as it was, um, it, it still came from other, other languages that existed before it, and there are still many more influences on modern English than just Latin. You know, and, and, and all of them have been a mess. And so it's instructive to me in terms of talking to an audience of non-linguist people is to say, yes, it's very funny to point out that skiing doesn't know what they're talking about, that switch means a direction and it doesn't mean backwards. And they're borrowing from skateboard or they're borrowing from snowboarding who didn't have it right in the first place because the skateboarders were mad in the 90s that they would say switch when the snowboarders were skiing on a symmetrical stance in the first place. <laughs> so, like, it's always a mess. And if you want to poke fun at them, you poke fun at them. But what's happening with rollerblading language, with skiing language, with skateboarding language, are all totally well-known and well-established patterns of how language works when humans do language. It's not new. It's not... It's not ridiculous you know things become you know the things that gain influence are the things that you know spread the most and become dominant in various ways um irrespective of what's right and wrong right so there, there's a there's a great quote from the west wing where they're trying to deal with uh, i don't know a terrorist situation or something and one of the characters says you know when we were fighting Mussolini and the fascists in Italy, you know, the Italians, you know, weren't, they, they like, what does he say? They didn't, they didn't want to be fascists. And, and when we won, we just convinced them that we were right, that fascism was wrong. And, you know, the point that he makes, the point that he said, I'm, 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 I'm garbling this all up, but the, the, the catchphrase that he says is, They'll like us when we win. So they think that they like fascism, but we can come in and we can murder all the fascists and we can give them democracy. And then they, they thank us in the end saying, wow, yeah, it turns out fascism sucked. Thanks so much for the democracy. We really appreciate that. Even though we got democracy from them because they were the fucking Romans, you know? Anyway, I'm, I'm really, really wandering right now. I'm sorry. Um, but skating-wise... Relate that to skating. So, so skating-wise, um, whoever whoever wins, and it seems for the most part that skateboarding has won, snowboarding has won, skiing has won, and all the other kind of peripheral sports um, have have been given you know second fiddle status, um, and so you know rollerblading isn't really in a great position to influence um, action sports lingo across the other action sports. 
whereas the trends that happened in skateboarding in the 1980s are influencing things that are still going on in skiing right now. And my point, after all this diatribe, is just to say that that's how language always works, that we say things in Greek every day. We say things in Latin every day. We say things in Spanish and French every single day. We use grammatical patterns that don't match up. Some things are grammatical from English. Some are grammatical in German. Some are grammatical from Latin, you know. And it's just such a hodgepodge, and there's really no true right answer. And that goes back to what I was saying before about the, the Internet culture wanting a right answer, wanting to know the truth, and there just isn't one. It's just a mess. All of language is just as messy and just as poorly thought out as skiers saying switch to mean they're skiing down a mountain backwards. It's, uh, just, as, it's just as messy, it's just as nonsensical. <clears throat> also, these all of these things being so young makes it extra messy, too. That there could be a lot of crossover long after we're dead between these things. Where yeah, maybe... I think, think that that's, that's definitely true. And, and, and you're right that we'll never know if we're dead. Um, <laughs> But, but I also think that given the way the rate of change is accelerating, where it's really not outrageous to talk about rollerblading being around for about 20 years or so, and having had two, three, four, five generations in 20 years. Yeah. Yeah, it's actually... It... So if you think about a language like, you know, Welsh or Gaelic or um, Romanian or Finnish or German or anything, making subtle changes over generations, it's, it's, really, it's really not unthinkable. And if we're condensing down those generational changes to five years apiece, then it really is happening at, at the rate that you would predict. Five generations is a long time to keep, you know, lingo in in the in the in the vernacular. Um, Nobody in eighteen in 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 eighteen or in let's just say it's it's twenty fourteen. No one in nineteen fourteen was saying rad. <laughs> there were people who in nineteen fourteen were saying radical, but they weren't using it in anything like what we were saying, and that's a hundred years ago. And we're calling that maybe three or four generations ago. And to me, in rollerblading, three or four generations ago was Brooke Howard Smith and Angie Walton and Chris Edwards and all those guys. That, to me, is four generations ago. Can I say something about Rad quickly? You might appreciate this because it's punk rock related. Sure. Um, Please. We got a pass to go to the Warp Tour in Vancouver in 1997 or 1998 through awesome. Daily, D Daily Bread and... Um, I only had, I think 10 or $15 to buy something from a merch booth. Uh -huh. And I went up to the merch booth and I asked the person kind of like sitting there all cool. What's something rad that you can buy for 10 or $15. And they made, they, they made a joke that they hadn't heard the term rad in a really long time. Um, yeah. and I bought, a, I bought a rancid beanie that I skated in quite a bit. It was like it said rancid in Old English, but it was so – I remember that so clearly that I used the term rad very normally for me, 
Yeah. And, and for the person that maybe would have been my age now or a little bit younger working the merch booth, it was like they had they hadn't heard that word, and they were from probably from fucking California or something, and that rad was out of style at that point. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That it was completely cliched to use that word. Yeah, so. but that's and that's that's just in in sort of uh, normal normal public speech for young people. I you still I, I I I don't think I, I think that I think that the generations in terms of in terms of uh, the the kind of general public or the general youth public is is pretty consistently about a decade. You know, it's 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 not necessarily. You know, from 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 the year zero to the year nine in each decade, because decades don't really work that way. You know, the, the old school rollerblading stuff that was taking place in like ninety one, ninety two looked so so eighties to me. <laughs> and and even though it was the nineties, it's still the 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 last dregs of the eighties still still shaken. And you see that in rollerblading where. The '90s really ended in about 2001, I think. With mind game, with with street skating dominant, like how so? Oh, I just I just mean like in general. Like, oh, in general, yeah, yeah, absolutely. General, culturally, you know, and, and not not necessarily just as an American. You're but... talking like Saved by the Bell and and just music videos and and TV shows and everything. Like, yeah, the whole the whole of the culture, like the cultural decade, ended. I think with September 11th. I think for the whole world. Yeah, yeah. Holy shit, yeah. And and that was really the end of the 90s. Was September 11th, 2001. Oh, oh man, where were you? When do you remember what? Yeah, I was. I was. Um, I was in my bed, uh, dead asleep. Um, in, in Austin, I was in college and this, the, the girl that I was dating at the time had spent the night and she and I woke up to my phone ringing and my dad, who was in Canada for a job interview, called me on the phone because he'd gone to the airport to get a flight home and, um, he got to the airport and they said, go to the hotel because all the airports are closed. A, a plane, a plane crashed in New York and they've shut down all the airports. And round about that time, he'd got to the hotel and had turned on the TV and had called me and just said, turn on the TV, and then hung up the phone. Because he was calling everybody and saying, turn on the TV, <laughs> and, then, and then just hanging up and calling the next person. So at, at you know 8 o'clock or so in the morning, the first plane had hit, and the second plane had not yet hit the World Trade Center. And I got the call from him saying to turn on the TV. Turn on the TV, um, and and basically within within seconds of of him calling me, the second plane hit. Maybe it was no, it was it was longer than seconds. It was it was a couple of minutes, but it was I was I was dead asleep. He called. He turned. told me to turn on the TV. Turn it on, and he turned it on. And within a few minutes, the other plane hit, and it was it was. The whole that whole experience was terrifying. Yeah, I had a similar one, but it was my dad woke me up like very calmly and said, "There's really sad news out of New York right now." And then I went upstairs, and that's when I saw the second plane hit 
yeah live and it was like that feeling of being unsafe even where i was i didn't know if that was if something was happening all over the world or right oh well, for, for me i'm i'm i don't know if this is gonna alienate half of my audience or not but i'm i'm a big old lefty liberal ninny and um i had done a lot for the al gore campaign uh because george bush was from uh texas sort of and uh, was the governor of Texas, and I did not like him as a governor, and the 2000 election was the first election that I could vote in, um, and I was a part of the, the Democratic, you know, uh, youth group, whatever it was called, on my college campus, um, and I had done stuff for the Al Gore campaign in Austin, and I was really, really bitter, and I really thought that we elected the wrong guy. And the whole thing with the hanging ads and all that crap was going on. And I was just majorly, majorly bummed that Al Gore lost the election. And I also thought that George Bush was a fucking psycho. And when when September when the when the when nine eleven happened, um, I was really, really terrified that he was such a wily e. coyote cowboy that he was just gonna start fucking nuking people. And you know, I was really young. I mean, I was, I was, you know, 18 or 19 or whatever. And I didn't really know better than to react that way. Um, but I was terrified that like, literally that the world was going to end because, you know, all the, all the, like the stuff that I looked up to when I was growing up was all punk rock stuff. And a lot of the stuff that I listened to was really, really sensitive about how nonsensical it was for the Cold War to have taken place and for the U.S. and for the Soviet Union to be holding the entire world hostage for a 30-year Cold War where the world could end at any minute. And it was really, really close to ending about a half a dozen times. And, and it was so dumb that we were ever that close to species annihilation that even the punk rockers who I was listening to as a teenager... Um, we're still singing those songs in the 90s and and cuz it was it was live in the 80s the world could have ended at any moment during the 1980s at any moment and and a lot of people know exactly how close we were to that and a lot of people have no idea just how close we were to that um but i was really really scared given that kind of conditioning that 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 george bush was going to just start nuking shit. And clearly, you know, he knew better and everything, you know, wasn't as bad as it could have been. But I was definitely terrified when it happened. Not because not because I thought that the the terrorists were gonna come to Austin and bomb our skate park. Just because I thought that like we're gonna start nuking people, they're gonna start nuking us back, and the world's gonna end by the end of the week. It's amazing that we have got to this point and we haven't blown a bunch of things up, each other up. I'm I'm happy I'm still here. Yeah, I mean and and it's just it's it's just to keep banging the same drum that I've been banging about about language. You know, when when people talk about it's not called like this this debate when I was younger used to just rage at Woodward about whether or not you can you can topside soul 
a round rail. <laughs> and like people people would get fucking pissed. You know? People would get so mad and and just in sin like, "Well, fuck you then. I'm going to go take my skates and skate over there. And I'm not going to I'm not going to eat with you at the burger cafe anymore." <laughs> And like it, like it would, it was so ideological. It was so crazy, and and each side thinks the other side is just total idiots, you know. And there's there's just there's just gotta be there's gotta be more patience than that. And and I don't think that I don't think that you need to go to graduate school to get that kind of patience. But I definitely had to go to graduate school to get that kind of patience because I didn't have it before. You know, I was I was part of the you know the the campaign about you know if you don't fucking grab your tricks it didn't count if you don't fucking do so and so it doesn't count and if you don't do it our way it doesn't count and it's like it's just so narrow minded you know. Um, what would you have said like um, so back then Frank Stoner at Woodward would what did he say about could you topside around rail or not? Um. Oh, oh, like which camp was I in? Yeah, like, uh, yeah. What did Frank Stoner back then think so, yeah, about back, that? Back then, I would have been on the camp that if it's if it's a if it's a if it's a round rail, then you're doing a far side sole, and if it's a square rail, you can do a top side sole on it, but that you could do a far side sole on a square rail if you did it to the far side. And stood up on it. I hope that makes sense. Yeah, of course. And I think I would agree with you. And then I, I would say maybe like that that uh, topsail on that rail was so boned out that it looked like you made it topside. I wouldn't yeah, say that it was a topside soul. I would use language to describe how it visually appeared to me on the round rail. Right, right. Um, I have been really fascinated um from from a linguistic point of view about that and i wrote an article that nobody read um i think it might have even been the first article that i wrote for one um was that the one at the tent no no it was talking about far side and top side and and what's really really fascinating about that from a, a from my point of view as a linguist is that um in linguistics um no preposition in no preposition in English encodes what's called the shape of a geon. Now, what that means is, if I say that Joey walked through the parking lot, the preposition in that sense is the word through, and in English, the word through will never give you any information about the shape of the geon, the shape of the parking lot in this case. Through will not tell you if it was a round parking lot or a square parking lot, or a rectangular parking lot, or a curved parking lot, it won't give you any information. We just know that you went through it, and no preposition in English encodes the geon shape. Does that make sense? Yeah, well, if you said through, you would have to say, like, there was a bunch of cars or something. Anyways, yes, that makes sense, of course. Well, okay, if I said he wa Joey walked through the forest. Yes, then there's, I, I can see shapes of trees, yes. Well, but like the, it could be a forest in a downtown. It could be a wild forest. Okay. Yeah. Anything about the geon? We don't know this forest, the shape of the forest. <laughs> we don't know anything about from the word through. Yes. 
the word through gives us no information about what the shape is of the forest, right? So in linguistics, that's called a geom, and we get no information about it from the preposition. Now, there is a very special case that I can make that would argue that topside and farside behave and satisfy all the criteria of prepositions um, in every case except for their syntax, which is getting a little bit complicated, and this is probably why nobody read the article. Um, but syntax is just word order, and if you're an old-school grammarian, uh, you will not recognize farside and topside as prepositions. But if you can just just pretend for a second, or or just just go with me for a second that that they are prepositional, um, then they would be the first two words in English ever to specify the shape of a geon. So if you're saying a far side soul can only be on a round rail, that preposition is specifying the shape of the geon, and no. No preposition ever in English has done that. Wow, really? Yeah, none, ever. In, in linguistics, we have what we call nonce examples, which is where you invent a word that you uh, attribute those properties to uh, and say that that's what it means. For instance, uh, there's a, a notable example from a, um, a, a, a linguist who looked into the matter in the 80s and he invented the word sprue, and he said, for the, for the case of making an argument, that the word sprue means to transverse along the long axis of a roughly cigar-shaped thing. <laughs> yes. So, for instance, you can roll a sprue the center of the fuselage of an airplane. Yeah. Right? Imagine the... Like the, the, you know, the center aisle when you walk down the plane to get to your seat way back at the back? Yeah. If you were to roll a carpet from the front of the plane to the back of the plane along that long axis, you would be rolling the carpet, sprue the plane. <laughs> so now this is just a made-up word to make, a, make an example that there is no such word. So in the same, in the same sense, you cannot have, um, say... Uh, something that's not sort of cigar-shaped like that and say, um, Joey rolled the ball, sprue the football field. Because a football field isn't shaped like a cigar, so therefore that preposition doesn't apply to that shape of a thing. Does that make sense? Yeah, because it's you can't... There's nothing that you can get about what it what it is. There's through. Well, yeah, you know what I'm saying sprue, right? We're on board there. Yeah. Okay. Sprue okay. for the airplane. Yeah, the, nonce, the nonce term is sprue, right? So you could have you could have you could push you could push a needle, sprue a cigar. <laughs> you could roll a carpet, sprue an airplane, but you couldn't roll a ball, sprue a field. Because a field doesn't have that shape. Yeah. So, so this guy, this guy who looked into it, literally had to invent a word to demonstrate that there are no words in English that do this. And so I'm raising my hand, saying, "Wait, wait, 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 wait! Rollerbladers did this. We did this for fun. We made this up. None of us are linguists. 
we develop this on our own out of necessity of how we interact with the world. Yeah. We need to know whether the rail was square or round because back in 1996 or 1995, you get real serious props for doing a topside sole on a square rail because that's way scarier than doing a far side sole on a round rail. Yeah, that shit's crazy. And it matters to us in terms of credibility that we give to each other. It matters to us in terms of understanding what it was about the world that someone is trying to communicate to us. And it also matters in a real physical way how your body has to change its shape to perform the maneuver, which isn't really the same maneuver. That the stance in 1995 that you had to take to do a topside sole was way different than the stance you had to take to do a far side sole. Yeah, and there's very clear examples of it in, in Hoax, too, that you could take screen caps of. I think Ernie Villarino does a topside sole yeah. on like a metal edge ledge, and then Steve Thomas later on. You know, there's a, there's obviously far side soles later on in the video, but there weren't many topsides. And the topside, like, it looks difficult. It looks like, how do you even bend your ankle exactly, like exactly. that to get over that object? And, and that that problem of it being such an exaggerated stance to, to get a topsole to happen is one of the things that necessitated the invention of a totally novel concept, which doesn't carry the same properties as frontside and backside. It goes a step further and specifies the shape of the object that you're grinding on. And at no point in English history has a preposition ever specified the shape of a geon. And rollerblading did it. And we're the first ones to ever do it. Yeah, hey, so wait, does biking must have topside? I know they do. But I don't know what they it's have... called. Where your so... where your peg where your wheels over coping, if that makes any sense. Yeah. Oddly, they call that downside. So downside. And you would hit a rail. So, okay. Do you know the difference between if you were to do far side pegs down a rail or be in a bowl or on a quarter pipe? Is it downside on a rail and on a quarter pipe, if that makes any sense? Well, it was a platform that keeps the wheels from being vertical? Yes. So this is this is what I know, and I could I could probably I could probably ask some of the BMX guys that I know to give me an answer for that, but I, I can't answer that uh, off the top of my head because I don't know. But the the two examples that I do know are that downside is what you're imagining as a kind of a, a fish brain type of grind on a bicycle. Yes. Right. Where the wheels could roll on the deck of a of a vert ramp or a mini ramp or whatever. If the bike were stood up that way, yeah, I think everybody everybody's on the same page here. Yeah, um, the the other thing that they use is topside, which is going to sound kind of uh, backward to rollerbladers, but you could probably make sense of it. So if you imagine a mini ramp in a warehouse like they were in the '90s with a uh, rafter up top on the ceiling, and if you do an air high enough to stall your bike in the kind of mirror image of a topside. So what they call downside, we call topside, right? But imagine, imagine if there was a rail in the air. Oh, vertical sole stall is topside like to them. 
Yeah, but but vertical meaning like like a horizontal soul stall. Yes. Yeah. 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 Sorry. Horizontal. So your feet, your soul foot, for instance, comes up, turns ninety degrees, and the outer edge of your frame comes up and just meets to it, and then you fall down from that back into the ramp without you without having put your feet over that rail. Do you know yeah. what I'm saying? Yeah. As if you were putting your feet on the ceiling. Yeah. So in BMX, as far as I'm aware, that is called topside. And the other version that we would think of as topside is what they call downside. God damn. Well, that, you know, that makes sense. That well, makes sense the one's up me. and the one's down, so that kind of, you know, makes sense. Yeah. Uh, and I think that downside um, was in use before that topside term came into use. Um. But on a bike, I, I think they're imagining it relative to the bike rather than relative to the object. And so if you're imagining it relative to the object, you're not going to be talking about a preposition because prepositions deal with path and orientation and trajectory. Like the word over is a preposition. The problem, One of the problems that that linguistics has faced is that until cognitive linguistics came along, there really hadn't been anybody who had invented much of theory about prepositions. You could get lists of what the prepositions were since the 1600s, um, but no one could really tell you what they are. And one of the things that I remember writing for that article was that when I was in um, elementary school, I remember my teacher telling me that a preposition is anything that a squirrel can do or be in relation to a tree. So a squirrel can be in the tree, on the tree, it can go over the tree, through the tree, under the tree, around the tree. And that made a great deal of sense to me, but that's a demonstration by example. That's not actually giving you a, a principled um, um, code or, or a coherent set of principles to establish what it is that makes a preposition. So if there's anybody out there who's fussy about grammar, um, I can tell you that um, I, I would encourage you to look up the linguistic, the cognitive linguistic theories that have dealt with um, prepositions in the last 10 years or so, because we as, as, a, as a discipline have really done a good job of getting back to basics and coming up with theories that explain what these things are because prior to cognitive linguistics, there really haven't been any coherent theories uh, or principled theories, I should say, um, about what prepositions are. And so if, if you are of the mind to think that far side and top side are adjectives, um, you're right insofar as that's what your teacher would tell you. But insofar as the latest linguistic theory, uh, far side and top side satisfy every requirement uh, to be prepositional. It's interesting to think that you could communicate with a rollerblader to say, you know, I walked <laughs> walked down the set of stairs and my my uh, my hand ran uh, top side down the rail. You would just assume that it was square. I don't know if that makes any sense. Just like you would say, I wish my uh, razor was UFS, like my. Yeah. 
I, I love that we could jokingly use language to describe things in the everyday world that people. Oh yeah, know. yeah, yeah. Like I mean, I've I've actually I've actually heard people say that they were walking, and and rolled their their ankle like twit like sprained their ankle, but Top. Like rolled it all the way topside. Topside. <laughs> and that's interesting because that's that's really a, a pretty far extension um from from what our what our usage is in rollerblading because well i guess that kind of depends because back in the day like you were saying a lot of people thought if your foot was tweaked over enough that you could call it topside right yeah and so in that sense it's it's pretty much one to one but in the usage that I described just now, um, that's pretty far from it, you know? Like, if, if I'm saying that far side is a prepositional uh, term that uh, encodes for geon shape and gives you path, orientation, goal, trajectory, and some other things, uh, including the geon shape, that doesn't really parse out very well with the instance of rolling your ankle. God damn it. We, so it... do, we, do, we do get it well enough that it makes perfect sense. Your brain is really good at dealing with what's called polysemy, which is when words have lots of meanings. Um, some words have a really tidy one or two meanings, uh, like the word um, sanction can mean either to forbid something or to allow something. Which is nice. That's also called a contronym when the words, the two meanings are opposites. Um, but you have what's called, this is a real term in, in, in linguistics, uh, wild polysemy is when you have a word that has dozens of meanings. Uh, like the word over has 88 demonstrated different meanings. Think about the difference between um, I stepped over the crack versus um, the plane flew overhead versus I got over my ex-girlfriend after a year of depression. There was a really good joke in that um, Guardians of the Galaxy movie about that. Did you watch that movie? No, I tried to watch that two nights ago and I fell asleep. It wasn't because it was bad. It was just because I was tired. I've seen about, I think, the first three quarters of it. But I just, I couldn't, I, could, I fell asleep. I think there's a couple jokes about him using language. Um, that he's from the earth and he uses language in a certain way and the people that he's dealing with that are from other parts of the oh, universe. Yeah he, had, yeah, he had idioms that they didn't get. Like, yeah, he said something about a stick up their butt and and she said, who put the sticks up their butt? <laughs> and I, I think there was one where he actually said that went over your head. Um, and then uh, there was another one where he also used the visual of like slitting, slitting a throat. But oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That one yeah, was really was good, good too. Yeah, yeah. And I thought that was, I don't know. I, I never knew the comic books, but I just thought that that was great. It was a great way of like communicating what you're talking about in, in a joke that to, to think of someone, someone reacting to only knowing one specific um, use of a word or a phrase. Yeah. And, oh. Yeah. I mean, um, one of the, one of the big problems, um, in Spanish, and, and anybody is welcome to correct me, this is only my uh, interpretation, that in Spanish, the, the preposition de, D-E, um, 
can mean either of or from. And in English, we have two words to separate of and from. Um, and in some, play, in some scenarios, it matters a great deal. For instance, in the United States, we have freedom of religion. Freedom from religion is a very different idea. But in Spanish, it's very difficult to parse that idea with that small of a construction. Um, because they don't have different words for of and from whereas we do, and um, I mean, it's, it's exactly the same, that like, everybody, it's not like the, the Spanish have difficulty running their civilization with that, with, that, um, with that difference, you know, and skiing is getting along just fine saying switch to mean backwards, and we're getting along just fine saying switch to mean left-handed and right-handed, or right-oriented or left-oriented. So then, um, with the internet, it's really, it's really just like, man, people really need to just fucking take a knee, man, because <laughs> none of this stuff is going to get resolved on the, on the, you know, in the chat room. Like if you want to find out when the skate session is, you can find that out online. If you want to find out what video just got posted, you can find that out online. If you want to know how much you have to pay to watch that video, you can find that out online. Those things can be discovered right now. But a lot of these things that people are arguing about can't be resolved in any kind of reasonable timeline, and certainly not in the space of a forum. Why do you think? Um, why do you think we we love we're attracted to it so much? The, the not that everybody is, but why do you think these things are still happening? Is it because the internet's so young and we're still getting over this kind of? evolutionary thing where we where we can argue about things online so easily no, no I, don't, I don't think so at all i I'm, I'm hesitant to suggest that there's anything approaching a human nature uh, because um I, I don't think that i don't think that there's many things that are universal um So I'm, I'm hesitant to say that it's universal that way but a lot of a lot of the things that we do see uh, across time and culture is is a is a need for some kind of certainty um, and you know we live in a in a kind of a paradoxical world there are things that that happen every day with a very precise pattern you know this is how astronomy works it's how astronomy worked long before there was telescopes the sun comes up and goes down every single day it's never not done that it's always going to do that and you can be certain about that but you know if you go into your to your TP to try to get some action from your wife or your partner um, there's no strategy that's going to guarantee that 60% of the time it works every time <laughs> you know <laughs> so we 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 are very comfortable with certainty because it itself is comforting Knowing that the sun is going to come up tomorrow keeps a lot of people from committing suicide every day. You know, there's there's a lot of things that are the, the tide, the sun, the seasons, um, any number. There's so many things in the world. You know, math, geometry. These things are relatively constant, apart from minute changes that we may or may not be able to detect. Um, and, and yet there's many aspects to math and science 
and human civilization and the world that are not at all consistent. And so we've seen enough of consistency to really, you know, have have an affinity towards it. But we're also creatures who are placed in circumstances all the time that are never going to be consistent. And so I think that there's this natural tendency for there to be a push and a pull. Um, unfortunately, I think that what winds up happening is that that push and pull usually results in a kind of a Hegelian or Leninistic progress, which is where you have this classic model of you have a thesis or an idea and then a natural antithesis or antithesis or antithesis or anti-idea emerges against it. The two sort of fight it out to the death and either one or the other emerges victorious or some combination of the two of them emerges victorious. Um, at which point the process begins again and a new antithesis emerges uh, to challenge that thing which has become the new thesis. And it just goes on and on and on and on and on. Did and that's the basis of the idea of progress. It has nothing to do with things getting better. It has only to do with things coming after what came before. So does that have anything to do with, you posted uh, that something about anti-anti-traditionalist? Uh, so BMAG um, has a Prince article coming out relatively soon, uh, and I wrote an article for it dealing with the multiple, the many names of rollerblading was the article that I was asked to write about. Yeah. Um, and one of the things that came up was whether we can sort out the difference between whether we're talking about different kinds or different scales or different names for the same scale of category. So, for instance, rollerblading and inline skating and aggressive skating are all very large category names for very similar kinds of activities. Other names, for instance, mushroom blading, um, are very, very specific. And the amount of knowledge that you would already have to have about rollerblading to understand what mushroom blading could possibly be um, is, is tremendous. There's so much knowledge that you would have to have. Because what when I talked to uh, a lot of people who were around in the early 90s, there was this wild sense of exploration, right? We now have wheels on our feet. What can we get done with wheels on our feet? Um, and, and that could be anything. That could be, can you go down a ramp? Can you jump over a hockey stick? Can you jump over a trash can? Can you do a 360? Can you skate on one foot and hold the other foot? Can you ride on one wheel? All of those kinds of things. Can you jump over the staircase? Can you grind on a railing? All those things were more, or can you, can you skate down a staircase? All those things were kind of equal in their, in their sort of value as attributed by the practitioners or by the proto-community, such that in the bottom line, you still have guys doing stair rides as tricks. Yeah. Like, it's a trick to go and stair ride something. It's also a trick to go 540 or something. 
It's also a trick to do a McTwist on vert. It's also a trick to grind a rail. You know, lots of things come and go. Um, but what I think a lot of the older guys, guys who are older than me even, um, what they valued about that beginning was just that just really childlike sense of openness and exploration that has really left a lot of rollerblading and did especially in the 90s, uh, in the later, later, you know, later half of the 90s and through the early 2000s where it would be really uncommon to see a video that wasn't 90% grinds. And the people who are really, really good at grinds can't do a McTwist. Yeah, very true. So, so the culture just solidified around grinding and very limited kinds of jumping so that, you know, flat spins are cool and misty flips are not cool. Uh, back flips are cool, but front flips are not cool. 540s are always cool, but you have to hold your feet. And, and you know, we, we developed this kind of um, rigorous set of standards within our own community um, internally and, and fairly organically in terms of, you know, nobody ever just set out to holocaust or genocide the, 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 the front flip. It just went away because the people who we looked up to we're doing backflips and not front flips, or we're doing 540s and not any kind of flip, you know. Anyway, uh, the, 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 the point is that, oh, God, well, now I'm a fool because I forgot the point. No, it was a anti-anti tradition. Oh, 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 yeah, thank you, thank you, sorry. I should just have asked you to help me remind. <laughs> um, so, yeah, what what I'm saying is that it's really easy to parse anti-anti-traditionalism as being traditionalism. But that's not what it is. Because mushroom blading is if you think about if you think about rollerblading, right, where that original openness, right, in 1991, think of that as being traditional. And then anti-traditional is what Senate brought, saying, we're angry. We jump on rails to, as a demonstration of our anger, you know, and all that nonsense. Um, you guys and, and the sort of whole mushroom blading movement is kind of anti-that in a way that you're almost anti-Senate in terms of what Senate was trying to do, promoting youth anger and hostility you know you guys that are in your 30s with wives and children and dogs and jobs and responsibilities and you're going back out and and doing something that an outsider would mistake for that same thing that was happening in 1991 oh yeah because yeah. it's similar but it's it's it would be disrespectful for the to to you guys as far as I'm concerned, um, because of the knowledge that that's that's all tangled up in this, that it's 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 reacting against the impulse to just do, you know, drive your car to the rail in the suburbs, and session the rail and session the rail and walk up the grass, and then jump grind down the rail and then walk up the grass 
and then jump down. Never do it. Never do a jump. Never touch the stairs. Never do anything other than doing grinds. And you guys have largely rejected that. And you guys are, you know, doing all kinds of neat exploration with the big wheels and with all kinds of mushroom blading. Which I think now... Um... But you couldn't be doing mushroom blading in 1991. What was happening in 1991 wasn't mushroom blading, even though some of the things looked like that. You have to have the 20 years of experience to be able to do mushroom blading. You have to know all that stuff, know what came before, know what, what people are reacting toward and against in order to do mushroom blading. That Having that knowledge is an intrinsic part of doing the thing itself. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's true. I, but I, what I see is the ideals, what we were really trying to do with mushroom blading is now integrated into skating better than we ever could have done it. And now the bigger wheel skating is just an absolutely basic, basic form of skating that I guess maybe has some elements of what we want to do with mushroom blading, but it's just a really, um, I don't even know what it is. I guess it could still be called mushroom blading, but how you say that there's like creativity and feet. And if you watch uh, 18 plus, and if you watch the DRC guys or Tim Hortons, it's like all of everything that we wanted mushroom blading to be everyone else is doing it way better in my opinion um skill wise they're integrating all of those things so um maybe mushroom blading has become big i don't even know i'm getting confused but it's definitely yeah anti-entrant yeah yeah i like where you're going i just don't know what if mushroom blading um is not going to mean anything anymore. Mushroom blading is just obviously what the name is that we took, but I feel like what we wanted to do is being done. Do you watch DRC at all? Those guys, the DRC guys from, from the UK. Um, I don't know. Um, I I don't recognize that. I don't recognize DRC. I mean, I know a bunch of the UK guys, like I, I met Alex Burston at the airport in Manchester one time for no good reason. Uh, I think they're from, I was in the, I went out to the smoking section and here's this dude in the smoking section, like decked out, man, like decked out in gear, like ground control gear, razors, backpack, the whole like hat shirt. You remember that scene in Wayne's world where, where Garth is sitting there and he's got all the Reebok shit on and he's like, says, Man, it's really it's like it's like people only do things because they get paid. And that's just really sad. And he's like decked the fuck out in you know, head to toe, you know, in the Reebok gear. Yeah. And I swear to god, I walk out to the smoking section to smoke a cigarette before my, you know, ten hour flight from Manchester back to to the US. And there's this fucking dude who turns out to be Alex Burston, and he's fucking decked out, dog, like decked out in here. <laughs> And we're the only two people in the smoking section, and it's really cold because it's right before Christmas. And I say to him, you're a rollerblader? And he's like, how did you know? And I'm like, bro, look at yourself. I mean, I get get exactly where he's coming from. I'm like, okay, how do you know what you're doing? You know, I get that. Like, you have to already know what rollerblading is to know what ground control is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
It's not like wearing Nike and saying, oh, you're a runner. And you're like, no, I don't run. What are you, dumb? <laughs> Where the fuck is Reebok these days, by the way? I don't know. What, I don't even understand the question. <laughs> but I just, it was really funny that the Garth reference was Reebok. And I don't. If you haven't seen, I swear to God, I, 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 I've emailed with him a couple of times. And I think that he and I are on good enough terms that I could say this without him can get badly if this gets back to him through Leon or anybody else. Um, if you could have fucking seen him, you wouldn't have thought anything other than that image of Garth. <laughs> I mean, he was so geared out, dude, like geared out. <laughs> well, his sponsors are happy then. Yeah, well, he was. that was before his skate came out. And he was on his way out to San Diego, probably to make that deal. I haven't talked to him about it, but I'm assuming that that's when that all went down. Yeah. After California, they put together that blue skate for him, and the, you know the rest is history or whatever. But um, yeah, I've, I, 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 I'm friends with him on Facebook, and uh, Leon Humphreys is a good friend of mine uh, from from London, and I met um, Joey Egan uh, a couple of years ago, and he's a really good guy too, and I. I keep up with those guys, but I don't know. I don't know who these other dudes you're talking about. I think they're from Brighton. I'm not completely sure, but in terms of like a creative revolution that hasn't been done in skating, um, they're just onto something really, really, really interesting and unique that could be considered mushroom blading. But in my opinion, mushroom blading was a name that we took, and now it could just be called creative skating. You know. If that makes any well, sense. Yeah, I was I was talking to somebody recently. It might have been my roommate Jared, and I think that we came up with um, the idea of improv because, and I think that we got it from a ski section where somebody was doing improv. Maybe I'm making all this up. I can't remember where it came from, but we definitely, I definitely had a conversation with somebody recently, um, talking about a kind of an improvisation as far as skating, but. It's it's sort of hard to say. I don't know how much of the stuff that I would say is like really textbook mushroom blading stuff. How much of that is planned out and how much of that is totally haphazard? There's we have a names for a lot of the stuff. Um that's where we we've always wanted to do more how-tos. Like there's uh -huh. there's tricks called uh, I don't know. It's like kind of some has names, some like there's one where Todd does this thing where he'll it'll be like a one foot roll and he'll do a hand plant with left hand, right hand, and he'll spin around a few times and kick with each leg. Okay. Like that's called a kayak. And we want to do a trick tip on the kayak. And then like we also have names for, you know, when Chris Edwards would like um, go up on his on his double toes or whatever. Yeah. We would just call that the thriller, and we've called it like that for a long time because Michael oh, Jackson. I, I can see that, yeah. Um, so we have like names for stuff that that have stuck, but um, and it's funny because they're not necessarily they wouldn't be absorbed by rollerblading, so they could be considered mushroom blading tricks, and that's where it's really interesting. And then we find out that slalom has their own language for pivots, but then we started naming them our own names and. Like you said earlier on in the podcast, did you say it's messy? Is that what you said? Language oh, is messy. Always, yeah. Um, so, so this is a question, though. 
do those terms that y'all have invented in an ad hoc way, do they mesh in with the rest of rollerblading language as far as you know it? Um, no, or, because can you, do, can you do a thriller to fakie? No, no, you would yeah. just, you would either you would do like a spinning, you could do like a thriller to stair ride or, um, now that I want to see someone do like I want to see Dave Lang like do, but we would probably just end up calling it double toe. Thriller was kind of like yeah, it's like a half half and half term. Because I could yeah. tell Dave Lang, I want to see you double toe full speed to backside that rail down that set of stairs. And I feel like that's where I'm saying things. Okay, but that does, though, because you would say half cab to backside Royale. So you would say thriller to backside Royale. That matches with the syntax that we normally use. Yeah, you could. And then that's where I'm saying. I feel like what could be considered mushroom blading could one day be absorbed. Like there's some things that these, that DRC or even um, uh, Tim Hortons. I don't know if you watch that. Yeah. They're, they're doing these movements that could very easily be integrated by people who are much better at skating than Todd and I ever were. Yeah. Um, and then, and then it it begs the question, you know, could this could this all be rollerblading, or would it would if you did that trick into a more accepted trick, like you say the cannon? Yeah. Um, well, one one and, thing that occurs to me is that there there was there was there's a a kind of a kind of skating that people I think derisively uh, call tippy tap, and that you know, which is. Which to me is not the same as mushroom blading. No. But then I also look at what what tricks a lot of the tricks in Lonnie's video as being very complicated and very creative, um, and I don't see them as being mushroom blading either because mushroom blading doesn't tend towards uh, the kind of standard objects. No, there was one that would have maybe been like considered rails, downstair rails. Um, you know, I guess you guys would do like a back torque to wall ride on a tree to jump back to the ledge and do a, a different grind. Um, there was one that came really close to what we always wanted mushroom blading to be. And I think it was the trick that inspired the entire video. I can't remember if it was like a, we call them cess slammers when you cess slide into an object that stops you with one foot. Oh, uh-huh. And I think Rob G did it true spin into a fish brain on a really yeah. low, like it was almost a flat ground trick, but there was enough of a, of a yeah, ledge coming like, out of the ground. Yep. That was pure mushroom blading in my mind. That was like what, what we wanted to do with mushroom blading, but that was an example of Todd and I never would have fucking came up with that trick. Yeah. It was Rob G and that was the most, like and then there was one by Ben Schwab where he did like a like a full on three sixty torque slide into a outspin fish brain yeah. or I don't even know how to describe it. It's the ones that are yeah. very difficult to describe in our current language. Um those were two of like the purest mushroom blading tricks in my opinion. Yeah. Like how would you describe that Ben Schwab trick? Uh, 270 or a 270 torque slide to outspin fish is the best I can do. I don't know. 
or peyote. Yeah, I mean the the kind of that kind of stuff. I mean, I don't want to take a stand on that because I don't really want to encourage anything in one direction or another. But good call. But what's what's novel? What's what's neat about that is that it is novel, and that it will challenge us as a community to produce new language for it because as those kinds of things become more popular, uh, our community will have the need to produce names for them that are coherent, uh, such that we can understand each other and understand what happened. You know, when you do a debriefing about, you know, you and your homeboy went skating and your buddy who wasn't able to go that day, you want to be able to report to him what went down and you want to be able to put a picture from your memory into the head of another person and you need language to be able to do that unless you, you know, film everything or photograph everything. And, and probably um, if the tricks become uh, um, kind of codified well enough where they're happening in the same way, um, and th this, this goes back to that same thing about in a predictable way, you can have arguments about what is, what is true spin and what is alley-oop uh, when you have a consistent world and when you have a consistent worldview so that you can make the argument that, well, you can't true spin alley-oop anything because you're, you're, those two things stand, you know, mean spins. Uh, you know, and other people say, well, yeah, you can say true spin alley-oop because alley-oop means backwards and true spin is just giving you the direction and blah, blah, blah. But you have to have a coherent world in order to have coherent language that matches it, you know. Um, I was talking to, I was talking to, to Jared last, and I was talking to Smiley, uh, Jason Mosley, who's a friend of Kevin Dowling's. He's from Atlanta, but he's been out here in Colorado for a couple of years now. Uh, he and I had a coffee the other day, and we were talking about these really, really non-standard tricks, not just the sort of normal non-standard tricks, but like, the way weird ones that didn't even really happen outside of a couple locations. Like, back in the day, when the soul plates, well, when there weren't soul plates, uh, and you had, like, uh, Rosies and Tarmacs and Rollerblades that had the raised heel in the back, Yeah, there was a way to do uh, soul grinds such that you were locked into your heal but you're also grinding in the first channel of your frame and those happen people did them I saw them happen in real life and it never became a trick because it's just too fucking weird yeah it's fucking haphazard and it's it's just so odd compared to a frontside compared to a royale or a unity or a topside acid that it just it's just it's just not really tenable um, and so when you have, when you have a consistent world, uh, you can name the thing. So the soul grind can have a name because it's, 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 it's sort of, uh, simple enough and coherent enough that everybody can get it, you know? And when the things are so creative that like, you could only do it at that spot, you know, I, I don't think that a lot of those tricks are going to get names. Like, for instance, uh, somebody does an alley fish brain on what in construction is called a lentil, which is like a horizontal brace that's anchored to a wall that usually has something on top of it. Yeah. And that looks like just a piece of angle iron bolted to a concrete wall. 
and somebody in feet does an alley fish brain, and the one foot is doing a wall ride while the other foot is doing an alley fish brain. Does that ring a bell or not? Oh yeah, it was almost like an alley of one foot wall ride, but there was a slide involved. But he's also it's like an alley wall ride and an alley fish at the same time. And you have to have that kind of an object to be able to do that kind of a trick. Because you can't do that trick on a normal rail if there's not a wall next to it. Yeah. Um and so it's inconsistent where you can alley fish brain anything that you can grind on so that when you look at Rob G doing that trick, you can say he did a true spin Seth slide thing to true fish, right? Like the, the alley fish or the true fish portion of that is coherent enough, even on a piece of metal that's maybe a half an inch tall. Yeah. So that conceptually, there, there is a, a concept of the alley fish brain that's being applied to that circumstance. Whereas the alternative is to have that alley fish brain wall ride thing being so specific to that object that it doesn't really apply to any other kind of object that isn't exactly like that. Yeah, yeah. I think, I think what you will find is that the tricks that get done a lot... Like, somebody is going to need to come up with the 270 back royale type of cess slide onto something, like, as a way to jump on or as a thing you do before jumping on to a handrail. If that became popular, that whole sequence would probably get a name because you can do that on pretty much anything that you could jump onto. You could do that up a bank onto a bower box you know, onto a pyramid box, or you could do that on a mini ramp, or you could do it up to a handrail. You know, you any any it's almost universal that you're gonna have some kind of flat surface and then some kind of rail that you can jump on after that. Or I mean, someone could even say he schwabbed it. Yeah, that's true. Except um it would be a first in rollerblading to have um, a trick named after a person <laughs> when the person wasn't going by their nickname. Yeah, that's true. Like the fish brain, for instance, is named after Tom, Tom Fry. Fry. His yeah. name was Fishbrain because he was a huge stoner, <laughs> and all of his friends called him Fishbrain. So he inv- he did started doing that trick, and they just called it the Fishbrain. I love, I love as that. The, as if exactly the same way that you just proposed the Schwab. Yeah. So Macchio. Yeah, Macchio. Macchio was was that guy, and I I don't know if that was his name or not. I think that that was his nickname. I, no, I think that's his real name. Is it really okay? Well, so then, so then he would be the very first precedent for that. Which is interesting because pre-internet, from something something from Japan, to make its way over to the. He would have had to travel over here and bring no, that trick. Angie, Angie and all of them went over there on the Dare to Air tour. So um, uh, Jacob sent me uh, Edwards in Dare to Air again, and I watched that today. And uh, one, I couldn't believe it was 1993. And, and two, I couldn't believe I still haven't, like, 
that's not a part of my own personal history of skating because it was a little bit before my time. Uh-huh. So it's really interesting to watch someone just skate down the streets and kind of hit whatever they want to hit in their skates, kind of do grinds, but I don't, I'm not even sure if anti-rocker was a thing because it was 1993. Right. Um, and then to know that that's going to be 22 years old. Yeah. Pretty soon. Um, yeah. Dare to air can drink, man. Um, it's insane. Um, and, and then knowing that he came from more of a, a skiing background, I have a new appreciation for the simplicity of his skating and, and I always wonder had his influence been um, more and Arlo's less in skating, um, maybe what would have happened. I mean, we wait, can all. Who, who, wait, whose influence? Edwards, Chris Edwards. Oh, oh, okay. Edwards in Dare to Air, Edwards in Fast Shoes. He, you can see his. There's a simplicity to his skating, uh-huh. and a and a basic, straightforward speed and everything that you can't compare his skating to anybody else. And I know that um, the way Jacob's connected with skiing and the way that I've been sharing the fuck out of skiing edits, um, there's something in skiing that relates to Edward's skating that is missing from skating today. And I don't know if that's, yeah, I don't know what that is, but um, that's why I've been sharing skiing. And it's hard for me to put into words, but there's something about the, the rules in, in skiing. They're kind of throwing out the rule book a little bit more and how you, you referenced improv earlier. Uh-huh. Um, in skiing. So what was it in the skiing edit that you saw that could have been considered improv? Oh, well, this is going to be a, a, a major killjoy, but I think that it was called improv. Oh, it was called improv. I, th- I think that that's where I got that from. Cause I don't think I would have, I don't think I would have come up with that on my own. They called it improv in VG as well. Um, there was a section in the later VGs, I think roots, Maybe yeah, have... like after after VG twenty or VG twenty two or something like that. Yeah, and it was um, it can be debated whether it was Mike Leaf or Jeff Stockwell who did the first kind of torque swivelly thing, okay. um, which is called a cork, apparently, but I bet it's called. Yeah. Yeah. Anyways, um, have you been watching? I mean, any of that skiing stuff. I, I have, yeah. I watched um, a couple of edits from the guys uh, in Finland, I think. Oh, like the mushroom skiing, the one, the the weird one. Yeah, it's weird. Like they slide on their on their uh, ski poles and all kinds of kind of offbeat weird. Like the one guy, he skis up to a fence. And like catches his toes or he catches his tips on the fence and then does a front flip out of it. Yeah. If we were about to die. And then, you know, it turned out that it was intentional. Yeah. And that, I mean, people were, a lot of people sent that to me and were like, they were calling it mushroom skiing. And I can see how maybe that, some of that stuff definitely would not be accepted as normal in skiing, but skiing's blurring the lines a little bit. Uh, wait, wait, yeah, no. The one of those guys did 
Like he skied up with two skis on, and at some point he managed to kick his ski off and did like a pud slide on his boot down like a rail. And then ditched the other ski <laughs> and did like oh, a front. Yeah, and then jumped on and did a front side, right? Yeah, or and there was even stuff that was very, very uh, faux pas in skiing where he slid like across a tabletop in a Macchio position and grabbed his other foot, um, which you just would not see that. Because people do pud slides in skis. Right. Um, but usually ungrabbed. And what I find funny is that um, it's called a backslide. It, the pud slide yeah. position is backslide in skiing, and Liu Kang is Liu Kang. But then, then they have like a blunt, I think, is when you're... you're... Yeah, I did, I, did see, I, I did see some of this. And I think I may have actually talked to Jacob... Uh, about this and we he, he's he's i don't know it's 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 hard to it's hard to know with him how things are going because you know he's he's sort of he's sort of in fits and starts with being sort of frustrated beyond words with what's going on in rollerblading to the point where he wants to just like run for his life and um the other the other aspect of that is that, like, he kind of can't escape it. Like, we're kind of a cult, and you kind of can't get out. <laughs> I always think I'm out, and I'm I'm not. People know that I'm not. I'm. I I have to watch everything still and follow everything. I'm in. I think I'm in for life. Yeah. Let me let me say a couple of things real quick. Um, number one, um, Chris Edwards poses a fairly unique challenge to me um insofar as he is a rollerblader um because he's obviously the 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 granddaddy rollerblader like he's where most of this came from um and so there's absolutely no question that he is you know tippy top in what counts as a rollerblader um, but I've, I've had an ongoing question for, for years now about what, what makes you a rollerblader. And as a, as a linguist, I have a bias towards if you know the language, that's what makes you a rollerblader. Because people who don't rollerblade don't know the language. Um, uh, there's a guy here in, in Colorado who's a friend of Kevin Dowling's. His name is Jason Mosley. He goes by Smiley, and he's been around forever. He grew up with you know, all those Atlanta guys and all those Georgia guys. Um, and his wife or girlfriend wrote a blog, and she may still update it periodically, but it's called A Rollerblader's Girlfriend or A Guide to Being a Rollerblader's Girlfriend. And it talks about, you know, how he says he's just going to go out for a quick session and he's gone for three days and he went to Virginia, you know, in the meantime. And it's it's a really really fun fun blog, uh, but anyway, um, what, wait shit why did I bring him up? Um, to do with Chris Edwards and rollerblading oh, language. Sorry 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 I'm kind of yeah. Um, so she is as close to a rollerblader as anybody is ever going to be and not be a rollerblader, and she has no interest in sitting around and, and discussing the finer points of whether you can true spin alley-oop soul anything, you know, whether, whether true spin and alley-oop are, are contradictory 
or not, like, doesn't care. And a lot of people who know the lingo uh, don't care to have those debates. But knowing what's a soul grind and what's a royale and all that kind of thing, that is, is what plays a big role, I think, in making you a rollerblader, is knowing the language, knowing how we talk, knowing what we call things, how we do things, um, all that kind of stuff. And I know for a fact that Chris Edwards really, genuinely doesn't know a lot of the names of the tricks. And that's really perplexing to me. There was a time when they would put him in the booth to, like, announce contests, and people would be doing, like, topside acid, and he wouldn't know the name for it. And now, okay. That's that's really kind of troubling to, to my ideology that says that you know, the, the language helps you get to the core of what it is. Um, because, you know, language emerges out of necessity. Uh, you know, it's, it's more than just, uh, you know, a caveman picking up a rock to break open a bone to get the marrow. It works for that, too. And lots of names that we've invented and, and terms and things we've created for rollerblading are out of necessity. And the whole thing about topside and farsight are out of necessity. It matters to us about the shape of the rail and that is a kind of necessity but you also have the necessity of of membership and kinship and belonging and in-group out-group behavior um where language plays a big role and so it's it's really compelling and not just from my own biases that rollerblading has a language rollerblading or at least a discourse um and that. Part of being a rollerblader is knowing the language, and it's just really kind of uh, tricky or frustrating or difficult for me to encounter somebody like Chris Edwards, who is the most rollerblader of rollerbladers. You know, he skated his whole career for rollerblade. You know, he's fucking Chris Edwards. He's the grandfather. Um, And yet there were contests when he was announcing... And he would say grindy thing for somebody doing a top acid. And you're like, Chris, come on, fool. It's dark. It, it's just top acid. Just say top acid. He didn't even really do top acids. He he no. may have done like the top side rolly, like the training wheel or whatever it is, but not. No, I know. I know. But like, you know, sweat stance, which he did, um, you know, much, much beyond soul, front side, backside, Royale. Topsoul, you know, Mizu. He just did, doesn't know many names. This is okay. So I was taking a pee. We had a little break, and it's going to open up way too big of a can of worms. But um, I do feel like rollerblading is splitting into two things, um, and both are very important for each other, but they're going to need to split for a while. And uh, one is what we know of as aggressive street skating, skating a box, skating a rail, skating a park, very grind specific. And the other is what I feel like Edwards, how he saw skating and, uh-huh. and, and kind of an extension of that. But it's so early on um and and now that I've skated longer, f- much longer frames and and bigger wheels, just like a really simple setup, I have a new appreciation for what 
whatever he saw skating was and what he was trying to do on skates, uh-huh. um, I feel like it could almost be its own style of, of skating. And I know with um, Tim Hortons and some of the stuff that Colin's doing, it's not necessarily slalom. He's not a slalom skater, but he's not really a, an aggressive skater. And aggressive skaters might say, and aggressive is like, for lack of a better term, or street skaters might say that's not rollerblading. But I, I just feel like um, we could be sp- splitting into two groups that need each other and should support each other. But we might have to be drastic that I don't know. I don't know how to explain it, but I just know that what, whatever Edwards was trying to do, rollerblading needs that still. And I don't know how to explain it, but like, so, so this is, this, this is, this is something it, 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 I'm still, I'm still on a kick because I, I, I believe that the, the world is a, is a complicated place. And, you know, there are a lot of things in this world that abide to principles and there are a lot of things in this world that do not abide to any comprehensible principles at least that we can discover or at least that we can discover right now um but i am really interested is a is a long-term goal to produce a set of principles that could explain why certain tricks are canonical and certain tricks are not canonical and there's there's a couple of things that are pretty obvious about, you know, well, tricks that that you can't reasonably expect everybody to be able to do uh, are going to be non-canonical, like what a lot of people call a closed book or a mirror grind, where it's like a, a double pigeon-toed soul grind. Do you know what I mean? Like Yeah. Like a, the opposite of a side surf or open book grind. You know, it's like the, the both toes are touching. They're both on the outside edges of the sole, and you're grinding. Some people, I think, call it a biscuit grind. I think Todd, in our last box edit, did like a inside open book negative or something like that on a box. Right, right. So I, I, for instance, have the ability to do that pigeon-toed double sole grind thingy. Uh, my roommate Jared does not at all have the ability, and he's a very talented guy. It's not about talent; it's about his feet literally won't bend that way. And contrarywise, he can do a topside open book on a mini ramp, and my feet will not bend to do that. Just will not. And so, it's pretty obvious when you have certain tricks like that that everybody should. That, or you don't have a reasonable expectation that everybody could uh, do that trick, right? Um, so that's obvious that that's not going to be as canonical as a Royale, for instance. Um, but you also have tricks like the the what we call a, a, a cab driver. Some people call a cowboy grind, where it's like a Royale on the back foot and a front nougat on the on the front foot. Yeah. Um, Everybody can do that. That's not outside of, you know, uh, the normal people's range of motion. You know, like, it's no different than a Mizu or a Top Acid. Like, everybody has a reasonable uh, uh, expectation of being able to do that trick. <clears throat> and yet, it's not a canonical trick. So it's a challenge for me to try to come up with what is really the difference? What is really at stake? What is really going on when certain tricks 
are centralized and others are, you know, kind of way decentralized and are way far afield. And I'm, I'm coming back to, to, to your point about uh, the Chris Edwards kinds of tricks um, because when you're talking about these, these sort of factions splintering off, um, there's a lot of what Chris was doing that's really just fun. And it occurs to me that a lot of the tricks that are non-standard are really just fun. They're things that you do to make your friends laugh. Yeah. They're things that you do to be silly in various ways or to, you know, have a laugh or have a go uh, at somebody. And it occurs to me that there's probably about three, probably on the order of about 300 tricks that you can do on skates. And only about 100 of them or so, maybe even less, are what I would call canonical. And so what that to me suggests is that there, there exists about two-thirds of the tricks that we can do that's just for funsies. And what Chris Edwards brings to rollerblading is a lot of that kind of mentality that it's really, really fun to haul ass on a vert ramp and just drag your toes across the deck. It's fun to do that. It's impressive. It's difficult. But so is a tabernacle. You know? And so... I, I, I tend to think that I, I wouldn't necessarily predict that there would be any kind of splitting of, of factions, but it would be nice to encourage people to see that there are the tricks that we sort of take seriously, and then there are the tricks that we take less seriously. And the ones that we take less seriously are the ones when a lot of the time we really have a lot of fun doing them. Um. You know what I mean? Yeah, I just feel so, like... So having this, this sort of binary between uh, the things that we take seriously and the things that we do to be silly, uh, both of those things contribute to us being rollerbladers. And people, you know, doing a sidewalk to make fun of something is just as fun and hilarious as, you know, doing a hurricane fish brain on a box. They're just different kinds of fun, you know? Uh, yeah, um, I just... One, one, one drives an emotion of pride and the other drives an emotion of humor. I just feel like um, some of the stuff that I've watched in skiing has integrated things that would be interpreted as silly in skating and made them stylish and yeah. acceptable. Yeah. And that's where I see aggressive and street skating could remain niche forever if it doesn't adopt – if some of the top guys – I don't know. I, I just feel like rollerblading holds a very small group of people in high esteem to be the gatekeepers of what's canon canonical and what what should be a trend and and pushes out um, some people who are incredibly talented. Matthew Ledoux is a really good example uh -huh. that that he was not accepted as much as he should have been because of the hand the the parkour influence right um whereas outside of rollerblading that may have been the best rollerblading that people had ever seen in their life was yeah. matthew ledoux and that's where i see skiing 
embracing that. Um, and it still has skiing has its trends and everything. But when I see someone do a giant backflip and grab both of their tips and um, and pull the tips of their skis, you would none of the top skaters, especially in North America, it would not be acceptable to do a giant backflip and and grab both of your skates and you know i just i would love that but i don't think um who we who we hold on the on the throne um wouldn't wouldn't do that i think maybe there's people like dave lang where it's like they're in positions of power where they they could sway opinion quite a bit uh-huh. but i i do think there's there's the chris farmers and the Alex Broskows and there's like, it's so, it's so small. Um, but these people do hold so much power. Sizemore is a, is a newer one. Um, these people do hold power as to what street skating is to, to everyone. Um, that's a long winded answer, but I find that I, as much as I love rollerblading and, and I'm a fan of it, um, I connect with skiing in being more open to things that are not canonical, if that makes any sense. Yeah. Yeah. I see what you mean. Yeah. And, um, that's where I say I could see a split, not that it would happen. And, and that aggressive skating and skating a box and everything will always be, be very defined, but I feel like that activity could be enhanced with more influence. Um, but it's not going to be me or anyone. Um, I don't know. I think you, you might, you might surprise yourself because I don't, I don't think that, I don't think that this, the, the kind of, uh, you know, Messiah complex where if we just had one guy at the top who like a Dave Lang, who would come and do a rocket air, that would make rocket air cool again. For no, him. no. Yeah. Yeah. You're right. Um, I, I really, I really think that, that, Real and lasting change uh, happens uh, excruciatingly slow, <laughs> and uh, the the kind of contributions that you guys are making uh, are, are 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 significant, and they are going to matter. But it's not gonna it's not gonna um, you know turn water into wine, but it it is it is going to have an effect. And there, there I had a. A German professor in college who used to say, and he was very, very kind of romantic German, and I don't know if there's any Germans listening to this, they might they might understand what kind of guy this guy was, but um, very, very classic German, but also very sweet and charming and endearing kind of a guy. Um, and he would and he and he read all the German philosophers that are just hard as nails and everything, and and he would say, you know. If you can, if you can live your life, and love someone during your life, and have someone who you call a friend who would also call you a friend back, and if you can make a contribution to the world, if you can do those three things, then you've lived a damn fine life. <laughs> and you know, I don't think that that's, I don't think that that's too low of an expectation because. If you if you get down to if you get down to it, those three things are are, are pretty big deals to have accomplished in your life. And 
the world, you know, the, the, the business about viral videos and 15 minutes of fame and so on, that's, that's all sort of fine and dandy, but a real contribution is, is, is better than 15 minutes of fame. And I think that the sort of slow and steady work that you guys do with mushroom blading, uh, promoting what you do, promoting an open attitude, promoting a sense of humor, uh, I think you guys are uh, of that. And I think that you are making a contribution. So you'll have to find love and friends on your own. But as far as making a contribution, I think that you're doing just fine. Oh, shit. I'm not good at taking that. Thank you. Sure. But, um, I, would but, um, too, I would also strongly encourage against a kind of messiah complex. No. Some yeah. Thing is going to come save us. The way that you change rollerblading is to fucking do what you guys are doing. You're on fucking Facebook all the time. You're skating all the time. You're reading all the time. You're watching videos all the time. You're playing an active role and you'd like to see slight changes and you're working to encourage those changes to happen. And that's how it's going to happen. Yeah. There's no Messiah coming. Everybody needs to give up on that idea. I know. It, it's funny that, um, just wrapping up here, because I think that that quote um, that you just said was the best wrap-up, but um, this frustration, this, like, buried aggressive skating anger that, that can pop up, um on Facebook. I know there's some people who sometimes can misinterpret some of the jokes and, and things pokes that I make on Facebook. There can be some really, really angry people. And, and sometimes like, um, the humor, I might not hit the mark or whatever, but, um, I just, I, I want, I want that to all be done. I want like where it, where it almost approaches like a religious battle. Yeah. Um, you know, like the old aggressive skating religion and the new, not, not that there's a new one, but, um, there's people who still haven't passed through clinging on to what skating used to be and, and that it's something different now. And I, maybe that has to do with that. We don't, if we're past the whole Senate thing and there might be people who are still stuck on the Senate thing. I find I, there's I, a bit uh... of that. Okay, I'll, 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 I, dude, have me on again. I want to have a whole podcast about that. I just, <laughs> I just wrote, I wrote an article that's going to come out in, in the BMAG, and um, I think that I want to redact everything that I'm saying in the article. <laughs> because it's in print, and so it's going to be permanent, and I can't just, like, post a link saying, hey, you know, that was total crap. So here's the new thing. Click here. <laughs> and I, I almost want to redact. I, I think it's fine, and I'm not. I'm not that worried about it. But yeah, I think that in the process of writing it and sending it out for publication, I've totally changed my mind on what it is. Uh, can you give us a hint before we go here? Or no. We'll wait. We'll wait until the article comes out, maybe. Yeah, well, it, it's 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 about it's about the Senate stuff and the aggression and all that. It's it's exactly where you were headed in your thought just then. Well, because there's that's um, that's where a lot of the tension's coming from right now, in my opinion. It's kind of like this. Uh, it it the okay yeah there is a whole other podcast. 
Because <laughs> I really keep is. I keep beating the dead horse of that Carol Lindbergh quote, but I think that was a really good example. Oh, I love that. With the yeah. Um, but I mean, yeah, that's a whole other podcast. It totally is. That yeah, I don't mind flat setups. I don't mind mind the I don't mind wording was just amazing. But okay, right. okay. Yeah, we'll we'll end it here. So anything? Oh, um, the article's coming in print. So when's that issue coming out? I, I I'm almost regretting now that I said it at all because I'm sure that it's coming out, but I don't know when, and I can't speak to that. Okay, but you have an article coming out that you're going to retract everything you said. Based uh, redact, on, yeah. Reject. Sorry. Well, yeah. Um. Yeah. Not really. Okay. I just I I feel like I feel like I I, I wrote it. I thought about it. I threw it away. I rewrote a new draft. I had a whole different idea, put it out there, and I don't think that I got it right. So I think that there's – I think that the answer that I gave is just fine. I also think that there's a better answer, and I think that there's probably a better answer still that I don't yet have. But well, the intermediate one that I have already is better than the one that I wrote. Let's just put it that way. That's good. You're being but vulnerable. It, it, but, but I think I think though that it'll, it'll still be useful. It's 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 just about it, it's about it's about um, you know why why rollerblading has so many names and why rollerblading uh, seems to have a need to have people understand that we're not wearing spandex, that we're dope and we do rails, and why are we so hell bent on having people understand? That sounds interesting to me. Whether well, my, you. My, <laughs> yeah, what I'm what I'm arguing is that is that really um we, we missed the chance to have a one word name. That ship sailed and it's impossible to have a one word name to stand for aggressive or street skating or whatever. Um and and it's impossible to go back now and re recreate it because you, the ship has left the harbor. Um the the what I'm doing what, what where I'd like to go with it in the future podcast would be to talk about why is it that we feel so compelled to be understood in the first place. Oh, that's a, that. <laughs> that is a whole podcast. I yeah. think about that shit all the time. Um, well, let's let's podcast about it sometime. Okay, cool. It'll be uh, it'll probably be in the new year. That's fine. It and it'll be um, there'll be lots to talk about because if who said they're coming on episode two hundred comes on, I'm sure there's. There'll be some interesting perspectives based on what our future podcast is going to be about. That would be very cool. Yeah. So. Be very cool. Yeah, we're yeah, at. Well, a... so if I don't talk to you again, I wish you a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. Yeah, you too. Same to uh, to our audience. Definitely, and uh, enjoy um, Colorado. And, yes, um, sir. In the meantime, I'll try and do. Um, that an open book or the inward soul is that what you can do i'm gonna see uh, if mirror i can... mirror soul okay i'm gonna see if i can learn that and and then um Some people call it a closed book closed book actually i won't be able to do that but anyways um thank you thank you frank this yeah. was awesome as normal yeah thanks as for always. having me i look forward to talking to you again okay have a good night thanks you too later